Good morning, everybody. Let's uh, welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church. If you are um, listening to us, watching us on Skype, we I do want to remind you that we're recording. And also because of that, we ask that you turn off your video and your, the camera and also turn off your microphone so that none of that gets into the recording. OK, let's begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Father, we thank you for your magnificence, your righteousness, your sovereignty over all things, your incredible love, unlimited love. Father, we also want to thank you for your plan of salvation, for your son willing to die on the cross for our sins, for your you raising him from the dead. And we ask, Father, this morning that you would have the spirit guide and direct our activities this morning to fellowship, to pray, to hear the word of God. And uh, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Again, I'd like to remind everybody who's on Skype this morning that we are recording. And so um, as a courtesy to everybody else, please turn off your microphone, especially and also your camera. Although I don't think that is the camera not going to show up because we're on Skype. Yeah, so it's just a microphone. Make sure you have it turned off. All right. Just one announcement today before we get started, and that is that next Sunday is the first Sunday of August, and it's also August 1st. So we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper here at the end of service next Sunday, August 1st. All right. title of today's message, it is I, do not be afraid. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ, in fact, the only words that he speaks in this passage that we have this morning. Our passage this morning is um, John chapter 6, verse 14 to 21. John chapter 6, verses 14 to 21. Give you a moment to get there, and then I'll read the passage, and then we'll just dive into it and see all that's here that we can see this morning. John chapter 6, starting in verse 14. One of the most beloved miracles in the Bible. It's, a, it's the first miracle that I remember as a child. Somebody teaching me and the vividness of the my imagination about what it must have been. Of course, we're talking about the Jesus walking on the sea. Um, in the darkness. All right, let's begin. John chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind that was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now I want to um, say the same thing I said at the beginning of last Sunday, and that is concerning the structure of chapter six. It follows the same sequence. Remember that chapter five followed. Chapter five began with a miracle, the miracle of. Uh, the lame man walking, and then it proceed, Jesus proceeded into a teaching then about who he is, that he, he is God, and the testimony of different people um, and his own miracles to that. So chapter 6 follows that same sequence of miracle followed by teaching. And this time, and there's more than one miracle. We already know that now because we saw the first one, Feeding the 5,000, in chapter 6 last week, and now we see this one. I'm going to put one in quotations. You'll see why in a minute. Um, so there's two miracles. There's actually more than two. Um, two events, I'll put it that way. And then there's a controversial teaching. In this chapter, it's verses 26 to 58. Jesus follows along primarily on the miracle of feeding the 5,000 to go into a teaching about who he is. All right. 
Again, I want to remind anybody who is on Skype this morning to please mute your mic because we do hear you, and that is going to be recorded. All right, so there are two miraculous episodes in Chapter 6. I use the word episode because it's not a single miracle in the second one. Anyway, the first one is Jesus feeding 5,000 men. Remember, it was not this 5,000 doesn't include the women and children, so it's more like 20,000, we believe, with just five barley loaves and two fish. This first miracle in chapter 6 was very, very public. We know that at least 5,000 men saw it. The disciples saw it, too. The women and the children saw it. It's the most public miracle yet that Jesus is performing. All right. So, um, and as we saw that, that miracle confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. Remember, we saw that at the end last week and how he was confirming um, things that were predicted of the Messiah when, when the Messiah would come. Um, so that was all about the Messiah, the Christ. Remember, the whole Bible, the whole Gospel of John is summed up by saying these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Messiah, the Son of God. And believing you may have life in his name. So the, so the first miracle is about confirming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. All right. Now, today, OK, the second miraculous episode in chapter six, and that is Jesus walks on the sea. Jesus walks on the sea. Now, this second miracle is very private. It's really only witnessed by the disciples. And that tells us that and Jesus is focusing in his message. That it was very important that they be brought along, that they come to a better and better understanding of who he was, because right after this, things are going to get really rocky. And I don't mean in the sea, I mean in the in the ministry. And so he had these times when he would teach and reach out and bring them along. And this is an important one, as we're going to see. So the second miraculous episode, chapter six, Jesus walks on the sea. It's private. Only the disciples witnessed it. The second miracle demonstrated that Jesus is the son of the living God. Remember, the Christ, the son of God. First miracle, the Christ. Second miracle, the son of God. All right. So um, now, if you remember, John records seven miracles in his gospel. Jesus performed many, many more than that, but he records seven. He selected seven for a special purpose. And again, the purpose, I'm going to repeat myself, is to show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So we've seen, after today, we'll have seen five out of those seven. We're only in chapter six, but this, this miracle today is the fifth one out of the seven. All right, so there are only two after that. All right. Those two, if you've been reading along, are going to be Jesus healing a blind man, and then, of course, Lazarus being raised from the tomb. All right. So now last week, if you remember, we saw that all four of the Gospels contain the miracle of feeding the 5,000. That is the one miracle that's in all four of the Gospels. Today, our miracle is recorded by three out of the four. Luke drops off. For some reason, he does not record this miracle of Jesus walking on the sea. But the other three do, Matthew and Mark and John. So therefore, there's this miracle, in addition to John 6, is also recorded in Matthew 14, 22 to 31, and Mark 6, 45 to 56. I'll give you a moment to write those down, because I think it would be very uh, edifying for you to read those other two. All right. I'm going to do the best I can comparing them and bringing in some relevant information from the other two. Because remember, just like we saw last week with the feeding of the 5,000, we have John's account, but the others add some details that, that round out uh, what is in the Gospel of John and vice versa. John provides details in the other ones so that you really it's really beneficial to look at all of them and then kind of put it all together with the different uh, unique details that each one adds to it. As a matter of fact, if we go to the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see that he actually records two miracles. So there's the, he has the, the walking on the sea, and he has another one. So if you could um, please turn now to Mark chapter 6, verses 51 to 52. Mark chapter 6, verse 52. So John records a single miracle on the sea. We're going to see that Mark records two miracles on the sea. 
And then we're going to see Matthew. So what do you think he does? Anybody? Records three miracles. Right. Very good. <laughs> exactly. And so that's why it's important to go to the other passages when they're talking about the same event. Mark chapter 6, verse 51. Then he, Jesus, got into the boat and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Now I want you to, the second miracle is that Jesus calmed the wind. That's why they were astonished. They were already astonished when he walked on the on the sea, but now when he gets into the into the boat, the, the winds miraculously stop. Can you imagine being in a in a hurricane and you're not in the eye, <laughs> and all of a sudden the winds stop and they never start again? I mean, that's the kind of impact that this must have made to the disciples. And that's another miracle. So you have Jesus walking on the sea, and then you have him miraculously calming those winds, which were very strong. All right, so then we get to Matthew, and as we've already seen, he adds a third miracle. So he also includes walking on the sea and Jesus stilling the winds, and then there's a third one. And I'd like you to look now to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew now zooms in on one particular apostle. John last week, if you remember, zoomed in on two. You remember Philip and Andrew? This week, we see that Matthew zooms in on Peter, Peter, the apostle Peter. And again, this is a very well-known event. It is a miracle, but then there's something else that happens to Peter. Matthew chapter 14, verses 28 to 33. Peter said to the Lord, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, at this point, Jesus is still on the water. He hasn't come into the boat yet in Matthew's account. That'll happen afterwards. And he's still on the water. And and Peter calls to him, if it's you, command me to come to you in the water. And Jesus said, come. (laughs) Imagine. Imagine being the other disciples in that boat. And they've just been going through this tremendous storm in there that think they're going to lose their lives. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears on the water. And now he's saying to Peter, come on out with me. The weather's fine, right? And so he's, he's, say, he's, basically, he's asking him to walk on water. And, and he does. Notice verse, verse um, 29 continuing. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat. And Peter walked on the water and came toward Jesus. That's the third miracle. You see, Peter didn't didn't have the right stuff in and of himself to, to walk on water, right? It was Jesus that empowered him to be able to do that. So you have Jesus walking on the sea, and then you have the wind, Jesus stilling the wind, and then you have Jesus giving Peter the power to walk on the on the sea. Unfortunately, things didn't work out as well for Peter. Um, look at verse thirty. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Seeing the wind, he became frightened, beginning to sink, and cried out, Lord, save me. His eyes, as long as they were on the Lord, he kept walking on the water. As soon as he turned away from the Lord and looked at the environment, considered the winds, got afraid. And don't we do the same thing? We rely on the Lord, but then all of a sudden something in our situation we concentrate on instead. Right. And as soon as we do that, then we sink ourselves, so to speak, not physically like Peter, but spiritually or in our minds. We feel like we're all alone. And, and of course, hopefully we'll do what Peter then did, which is to cry out, Lord, save me. Because at the end of the day, um, even if we are looking at the Lord, we're, 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 fa- we're fragile. We're, we're going to fail. And so we always have to rely ultimately on the power of the Lord being there for us, even when we fail especially when we fail. Verse 31, immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. And he said to him, you of little faith, why did you? And that's a question that we we, have, we understand the Lord asking us all the time, right? Now, we haven't literally physically seen these miracles. On the other hand, we have it all recorded for us. And we have our own personal history with the Lord. And we have seen how he has performed miraculous things, not not 
miracles as far as science is concerned, but things we know were very unlikely to happen, and we prayed for them, and then they did. He did take care of it for us. We also see the promises of God and the Word of God, which is again, should build this up, fortify us, have confidence. But there are situations in our lives where we're not able to hold on to that faith. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, this time Jesus and Peter are going in, and there we have the other miracle, the wind stop. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. And you see, Matthew, that detail uh, gives us the purpose, ultimately, for why the Lord did what he did, stayed alone on the mountain, and then let them go into the into the sea alone. And then the winds and the waves and all of that. And they despaired of life. And then the Lord comes and performs these miracles. And then what, what happened? What, did the, uh, what was the response ultimately of the disciples? You are certainly God's son. And so that was the purpose of it. Now we can argue whether or not Jesus um, caused the sea to, to rile up and caused the winds. But in any event, he may have just used it. But the purpose was the same to get them to understand a new understanding that he's actually the son of God. All right, so let's go back to John now. Let's take this passage verse by verse. Let's go back to John chapter 6, verse 14. John chapter 6, verse 14. We looked at the contributions that Mark and Matthew make over and above what John records. But now let's go through our passage today, verse by verse. John chapter 6, verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Of course, that sign that they saw at this point was the miracle of feeding the 5,000. They had seen that. And on the basis of that, they made a connection that this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. In other words, they understood that this is no ordinary person. Obviously, feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And they connected it with the prophet. Now, we have to ask the question, what did they mean by that? Why did they call him the prophet who is to come into the world? To answer that, I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. And starting in verse 15. What did the people mean by calling Jesus the prophet who has come into the world after he performed the miracle of turning five barley loaves and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 men, and then women and children on top of that. Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting in verse 15. That's where we're going now. Deuteronomy, of course, one of the first five books of the Bible. It's all, all first five books written by Moses. Much of what's in them, Moses is a central character. I mean, the Lord is a central character, but in terms of human beings, Moses is the one because he's the one in Exodus who brings them out of Egypt. He's also the one who hears from the Lord the mountaintop and provides the, the law, provides other instructions to the Lord, to the people, leads them through the wilderness and so forth. So it's focused on. And so in, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses promises a prophet. And that's what we're going to look at right now. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let us not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let, us, let me not this great fire anymore. Or I will die. And the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Notice he said that this will be a prophet like Moses. That's the first thing. Now, we won't look at it now, but at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says that ever since Moses, no other prophet has come into the world that matches who he was. So, so the Jews in Galilee, when they said this is the prophet who was to come, they were right. Jesus was the prophet promised by Moses. We get confirmation of this in Acts chapter 3. So let's go there now. Let's go to Acts chapter 3 in the New Testament to see that, that Jesus is confirmed in the New Testament as the prophet who was to come as promised by the Lord through Moses. Acts chapter 3 verse 20. 
Acts chapter 3, verse 20. So, so far, so good with the people. They, they saw the miracle. They did make the connection. But we're going to see that where they go next is going to be the big problem. Okay. They did understand. They also understood that there was this prophet was related, if not identical to the Messiah, because they're going to want to make him king. So they, they made that connection on some level. Maybe they didn't realize it. Okay. But they were understanding that Jesus is. In the Messiah who is to come as well. All right, look at Acts chapter 3, verse 20. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, there's the Messiah, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. As Moses said, verse 22, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren to him. You shall give heed to everything that he says. So who was that? Jesus the Christ appointed was the prophet that Moses said the Lord will raise up for the nation of Israel. All right. So Jesus, of course, knew what was next because he has omniscient, but he's also wise. Go back down to John chapter six, verse 15. The people were full of excitement. They saw Jesus perform a miracle of feeding thousands of people in a desert, and it brought to mind Moses. Why? Because Moses, as we saw last week, was also his. He was the hand by which God fed the people in the wilderness, Israel, when they were when they were traveling there on their way to the promised land. So they made that connection. And if you think about it, Moses, in addition to doing that, was also a great deliverer. He was the one who brought them out and, in a sense, defeated the army, the Egyptian army. And so he had power not only in terms of performing or not. He didn't really perform the miracles, but through God, these miracles occurred. But he was also a great deliverer. And so, you, in a way, you can't really blame these people um, that are here after the miracle of the 5,000 for considering that Jesus not only is the prophet, but also the, the king, which is to come. But they really didn't understand the plan of God when it came to who he was in that area, the king. Look at John chapter 6, verse 15. Jesus, so Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come, and notice the next phrase, to take him by force to make him king. Now, was that in the plan of God for Jesus, for the people to have him rise up? Make him king, force him to become king. And remember, there's 5,000 men. You can imagine that they were thinking from there, they would then become the first military that would rescue the nation of Israel from Rome. So they had this all built up in their head. And as we know, none of that was the plan of God. So that's where they made the critical error, not in considering that he might be the prophet or even linking that to the Moses and, and even the king that would lead them out. But in, in saying that we're going to do it, we're the ones who are going to crown him king and we're going to force him. Well, nobody forces Jesus to do anything. We saw that already. He does nothing except what the father tells him to do. So what did Jesus do at that point? He, he withdrew again to the mountain, this time by himself alone. You see, he, in a way, he didn't even really completely trust the disciples on this because they too had a lot of anticipation that Jesus is the king that is going to rescue them, right? Not only that, when Jesus had before this sent them out into the villages proclaiming the kingdom of God. So again, if you, they can perhaps be excused on some level of thinking, well, he's the king, he's here. So Jesus really didn't trust the disciples to be correct on this either. He had to go and be alone. He had to go and be alone. And, of course, we know that he was a king. He's the prophet who is to come, and he is a king, just not the king that the people wanted right then. See, again, they wanted a conquering hero, not a dying Messiah. They didn't understand the scriptures that he must die and rise from the dead first before he would then become the Messiah, the king. They wanted a conquering hero. They did not want a dying Messiah. And Jesus, by the way, had already expressed several times that he, in fact, would be dying for them. When they, when they, when uh, Jesus was in the temple and he upset the, the tables and, and got rid of the, the money changers and so forth, 
and he and then the, then they, he said, "Listen, um, if if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up." And he was talking about dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. So he's already talked about that. We saw last week that it was no accident that he performed the miracle of feeding the five thousand um, on near the Passover, because remember the Passover points again to the death of Christ. He would actually die on the Passover as well. So the people, the disciples especially, should have seen already that God's plan for Jesus was not as simple as they thought. And that, in fact, he was going to have to die first. All right. And they weren't really happy about that either. You know, in in the I think it's the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus said, "Okay, it's time. We're headed to Jerusalem. and I'm going to die. Remember, Peter said, I won't let you die. All right. What was that saying? I don't understand that you are the savior that has to die for the sins of the world. Okay, so the disciples, the apostles were almost as clueless as anybody else when they under, when they in terms of understanding the real calling and mission of Jesus. All right. As now Jesus would later testify in the Gospel of John when he was before Pilate. And I'd like you to see that. John chapter 18, verse 36. The people wanted a world king that would conquer the Romans and bring on. The, the new kingship after King David. And they thought it was going to happen then. They thought it was going to be a military conquering hero. And then, then Jesus is clearly going to go to the cross. And then he's before Pilate. And Pilate is incredulous. Notice verse 18. Because Pilate said, aren't you a king? And then Jesus said, I am. But then he said this. John chapter 18, verse 36 Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. It has nothing to do with with the worldly situation of Israel. His deliverance is going to be far greater than anything like that. His deliverance is going to be the sin of the world. He's going to deliver people from. He's going to die on behalf of all of us. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. And as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Made it crystal clear. He is not the one, the conquering hero, at least not yet. That would happen in the future. All right. So, again, we saw that they wanted a king of their own making. I mean, that's we treat the Lord that way a lot. We want a Jesus of our own making, you know, Um very few people are actually willing to take Jesus on his own terms and how he presents himself in the Gospels in particular. You know, human nature is to pick and choose, right? He was the great teacher, right? Or he is kind and loving only, right? So that we all have this tendency to want to create out of the entire package of information about Jesus, pick and choose the ones that we like. You see, well, they were doing the same thing. They were making him, in their minds, the king that they wanted. And Jesus would have none of it because the only kingship he would ever accept would be the one that their father will be giving him in the future. And it's interesting, too, that um, Jesus had already been tempted um, in, the, in the wilderness by Satan. in a far Because, you know, they're saying we, we're going to make you the king of Israel. Remember, if you know the start, Satan said to him, I will give all the kingdoms of the world to you if you worship me. So Jesus had already rejected that. And, you know, that principle from the greater to the lesser is a pretty solid thing. So if he'd already rejected all the kingdoms of the world, clearly he's going to reject this one kingship that they were offering him. All right. So Jesus withdraws again to the high country. Remember, we saw a picture of that. Uh, last week, you had the Sea of Galilee. By the way, that's 600 feet below sea level. And then you have these high hills. They're about 2,000 feet high. So we saw that picture of that contrast. By the way, that's why there were some, so many storms on the, on, the, on the Sea of Galilee. Because it was basically a funnel. And you had this, this Sea of Galilee below sea level, very warm, moist air. I'm not a meteorologist, so just take it for what it's worth. But in the later day, in the, in the later part of the day, these cool winds would come. And you have the hot and the cool, and that's what makes thunderstorms, for example, and other kinds of storms. In any event, he's up there again. We saw him there last week, the high country. And this time he wanted to be alone. Now, John doesn't tell us anything more, but 
Matthew and Mark tell us that when he went up there, he went up there to pray. He went up there to pray. We see we see in the other Gospels that Jesus several times went up to pray on a mountain and he stayed all night in prayer. This might have been one of those times. We're not told exactly how much, how long he was praying, but probably most of the night. And you can imagine, I think this is a fairly, I would say this with confidence, is that he was definitely praying for his disciples throughout most of that. Because, again, he knew what they were going to go through before they knew it. He understood the test that would be involved. And he understood that the, that the condition they would be in at the end of it would be a very, very difficult situation. So he's praying for them to have the strength, the awareness to be able to get through that trial. I'm sure, among other things, I'm sure he was praying for those the 5,000 people that had left, that he was had dispersed and they were going back. And then they had this great experience of a miracle, but now they would not have that anymore. And they would have to come to terms with who Jesus is, Jesus is on their own. All right. So there's a lot of things he, he probably prayed for. Matthew and Mark also tell us that Jesus was the one who dispersed the crowd. He's the one who got up and said, okay, you have to leave now. Okay. He was, he also, it just, in John, he says, well, the disciples went down to the, to the shore and got on the boat. Well, Matthew and Mark tell us that actually Jesus ordered them to do that. He said, listen, I'm sending away the crowds. I'm going up here alone and I order you to get in the boat and go into the sea. All right. And if you're the disciples at this point, now you've been following Jesus everywhere. Now, all of a sudden, he wants to be alone. He's up on the hill. He's not taking you with them anymore. He's, send, he's saying to you, go on your own and go into the middle of the sea. And you, they had to be wondering, why? And also, what's Jesus going to do? Where is he? Is he going to go somewhere else and leave us alone? So there's all of that at work because Jesus is the one who told them, get into the boat, go ahead of him to the other side of the sea. All right, let's go to John chapter 6, verse 16 now. You're, you were in John 18, yeah. Go back to our passage this morning. John chapter 6, verses 16 to 17. Now, when evening came, his disciples obeyed Jesus and went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, as he told them to do, they started to cross the sea into Capernaum. So they're going back. Remember, they went from west to east. They went on the other side. They were on the Jewish side. They went over to the other side. Um, let me see if I can get you. now. it's too far. I, I was going to show you that. That Well, you know what? I'm going to roll the dice. Because I want you to see this again. There. There we go. Last week, we saw that they were over here. Oops. We saw, we saw that they were here. Can you see that? Well, good. So they were over on this side, probably somewhere between Capernaum and Gennesaret. And then they went over here where Jesus would feed the 5,000. So they crossed this way. Now they're over here. Jesus is over here on the hills. And he's telling them to go down to a boat and go into the sea, and I'll meet you over here. So they're going right back to where they were. Okay. Now I'm going to go right back to where I was. All right. John chapter 6, verse 16 to 17 again. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea. It had already become dark. And Jesus has not yet come to him. So this is a whole setting that we're seeing now. Not only was Jesus on the mountain alone, he told them to go in. You know, it was late in the day when he fed the 5,000. So at this point, a couple more hours pass. It's evening time now. By the time they get into the boat and start going across the sea, it's now dark. And in the first century, when it was dark, it was dark. They didn't have any electric lights back then. All right. So it was tough enough. I mean, if you could picture yourself on the Atlantic Ocean at nighttime, there's no stars, there's no moon, there's nothing. And you're trying to make your way somewhere, you're trying to navigate. You don't have GPS. Right. It's, it's a very difficult thing just to be in a boat on a sea in the dark. 
So right there, they're already in a treacherous situation, and it's about to get a lot worse. Now, in the scriptures, the, the sea very often represents the chaotic world. I point that out because that's where we are. Right? We may never be in, a, in, the, in the Sea of Galilee in a boat at night, but we're definitely living in this chaotic, ungodly world. And so by means of application, when we're in those situations, when we're, we're when the world is pressing in on us, it's like being on a boat in the middle of the night in the Sea of Galilee where it's totally dark and we're at the mercy of the winds and the rain and the, all of that. Um, and by the way, I just want to give you one example of the fact that the sea often represents the chaotic, ungodly world in Isaiah. If you turn to hold your place in John 6, but please go now to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57, the sea represents the ungodly world. Daniel, when he talked about the four kingdoms, four great empires, he said they all came from the sea. In the book of Revelation, the beast appears coming on the sea. So, so very often the sea represents the ungodly world. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20, Isaiah 57, verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuge. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The wicked are like the tossing sea. Okay, that's the connection, the imagery here that Isaiah is using to represent the wicked people in the world is the tossing sea that's always, you know, riled up, that, that keeps churning refuse and mud. And that's a great picture of this world. Isn't it throwing a lot of mud at everybody right now? Isn't it garbage, right? All those kind of things. So it's a great picture what it's like to be in the devil's world, the sea. And now it was dark, and Jesus wasn't with them. And it's about to get very, very stormy. Please go back to John chapter 6, verse 18. John chapter 6, verse 18. We're going to see the, the, the desperation building. As things happen on that sea, as Jesus is not with them, and they're wondering, is he ever going to be with us again? Okay, are we going to live? Are we going to survive this? John chapter 6, 18. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. A strong wind. I mean, gale force winds. Um Apparently, I've never been to the Sea of Galilee, but apparently in the late day, early evening, these storms can rise up out of nowhere with very strong winds. Sort of like in Florida when we have these lightning and thunderstorms in the summertime. We're like out of nowhere in my backyard. I'm seeing things fly around because all of a sudden it went from calm to 60 to 60 miles per hour. But I would hate to be on the middle of the sea when that was happening. And that's what they and in the complete darkness. Well, Actually, once again, Mark and Matthew add some details. They they make it understand uh, help us understand that it was just it wasn't just that you know stirred up a little bit and there's a wind right. The boat was tormented by rising violent waves. All right. If anybody ever saw the movie The Perfect Storm, you might have a better idea of what I'm talking about right now. All right. Not only that, but Mark adds something else to these winds. That he says they were contrary. Well, what that meant was they were coming right at them. Now, I'm not a sailor either, okay? But I know this much, that if, if a wind is coming directly at you in the opposite direction of where you're trying to go, the sails are useless, all right? Even at a small angle, you can get some movement. But if it's right at you, all right, the sail, we don't know if there was a sail on that ship. But even if there was... It was totally useless at this point. So what happens? You're, you're, you're in the middle of the sea. Your sails you can't use. You're trying to get to the other side. What's left? We don't have motorboats. You know what's left? Rowing. 
rowing. But it's not I mean, it's one thing to row on a placid sea. It's another thing to try to row when you're going through a gale storm and the waves are 15 feet in the air and the wind is blowing right at you. It's very, very different. So they had a row and it must have been an exhausting struggle. Every every stroke must have been painful and difficult. And they probably they made very little headway. As a matter of fact, I'm going to see in a minute that they were probably rowing for about eight hours, something like that. Right? And you can imagine what that's like. And they were a long distance from land. Things were going from bad to worse. And all of this indicates when you see all of Remember, Jesus is on the other side on the mountain. Think about it. He's on the mountain. All right. He, we, they, at this point, they understand that, you know, he's no ordinary person. He's already fed 5,000. So they're thinking if anybody can get us out of this jam, it's Jesus. However, he's miles away on a mountain. He, and he told us that we're going to have to go to the other side on our own. And he's going to meet us up on the other side. So they're thinking, you know what? Right now, with the storm here and the darkness, he can't see us. He's doesn't know where we are. He certainly can't take a boat out by himself. You know, we're really in trouble. We are all alone. It's impossible for Jesus to come to them now. And without him, all things seemed like they were doomed. Right. And again, I don't want to I don't I got I want to keep pointing out that this is a picture of how we from time to time are. We feel like we're all alone. Everything's dark. You know, where's Jesus? You know, it's one of those things where many times I have heard people when they're going through the worst, they have the sense that Jesus, the Lord, has abandoned them. And of course, he hasn't. But that's the sense that people sometimes get. John chapter 6, 19. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat. And they frightened. You know, at a surface level, you might say, hey, it's Jesus. Why are you frightened? Well, first of all, it's dark. Second of all, they're in a mighty storm. It's raining. It's windy. They're exhausted. They can barely make out a human form, right? They didn't know it was Jesus at this point. And besides, they weren't thinking clearly at all. Now, again, Matthew and Mark tell us some additional information. One is, by the time Jesus is walking by them, it's what's known as the fourth watch. Okay, now, the fourth watch was the last watch of the night. Okay, they came in three-hour intervals. Okay, the the fourth watch was 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., right? It It ended right at when dawn was about to break. Okay, but but that's where it was. Now, again, I say that they probably rode for eight hours because, you know, it's Passover time. It's probably April. Right. And so the so the sun probably set at about maybe seven, seven, 15. And now it's three to somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. You know, so if you say 730 to 330. Right. That's six hours. Right. It could have been. I mean, that's eight hours. It could have been more than that. So it was a long time to get three miles, you know, as of course it would be. And of course, they're exhausted. They they don't. They still dark. They don't know what's going to happen. They see this figure coming towards them. By the way, Matthew and Mark say that they cried out, "It's a ghost." That's what they thought. And again, understanding it's you can vaguely see this person. You know, you're not expecting a human being to walk on water, right? So thinking it was a ghost was not. It was irrational, but it, you can kind of understand. Why they uh, why might have uh, thought that. And it turns out that then as now, ghosts are a bad omen. When you see a ghost, don't expect something good. All right. That's why they were frightened. That's why they were frightened. As a matter of fact, let's check out Matthew on this. Please go to Matthew chapter 14, verse 25. Matthew chapter 14, verse 25. So you can see it for yourself. And I'm not just making this up to tell a good story. It's actually in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 14, verse 25. Okay. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the 
disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Again, they were probably thinking, what else can happen? You know, here we are. We're exhausted. It's dark. Jesus isn't with us. We're in this storm. We're trying to row. We're not getting anywhere. And now a ghost is coming to us. You know, I don't know about you, but if that were me, I would be thinking maybe this is the grim reaper. You know, seriously. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is. Do not be afraid. There's our title for this morning. And and understand that he immediately responded to their cry. Immediately. Now, we're going we're gonna to see a little curious detail. What I'm going to see, I'm going to tell you a little detail in Mark that is very interesting. I'm going to tell you right now. He adds this detail that originally Jesus intended to pass by them because he probably saw it as a race and he wanted to get there first. Right. By them. However, when he heard them cry out, he said, all right, change of plans. I'm going to call over. I'm going to tell them, hey, it's me. I'm going to comfort them. I'm going to give them strength. Okay. And again, that again, to make the connection that oftentimes Jesus, Jesus always Jesus is very sensitive to the cries of his people. Okay, that's why we're told to pray always. That's why Jesus one time said there's a woman and she's at the judge's home and it's it's after hours and he doesn't want to see her and he knocks, she keeps knocking and then he has to see it, you know, asking you will find. So he's always sensitive to our cries. And again, that's an application that's pretty easy for us to make and that we, we would not hear these words in our ears, but in our heart. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus over and over and over again had to tell his disciples not to be afraid. Not do not fear. When the Lord was telling Joshua to go into the into the promised land, he said the same thing. Be strong and courageous. I'll always be with you. Do not fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them. So again, Jesus intended to pass by them. He hears them cry out, change of plans. He goes to them. All right, let's go back now to John chapter 6, verse 20, and we'll wrap this up this morning. John chapter 6, verse 20. Now, see, there's something in verse 21 of John that seems a little odd, which is why you go to the other ones to understand why they might think this way. I'll tell you what I'm, what I'm saying. John 6, 20, he said to them, same thing as in Matthew, it is I, do not be afraid. And look at the first part of verse 21. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. Now, at first glance, it sounds like, well, excuse me, you know, what do you mean you're willing to let Jesus into the boat? Well, the reason reason why was remember they still thought it might be a ghost and so when they finally heard him and heard his voice they said okay now we know it's not a ghost come on in right so that's really what's going on there and notice the next part immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going now some people want to make that another miracle okay but it isn't we'll see what that's all about in a minute take courage he's saying to them you're not seeing a ghost it's i the Lord had to say the same thing to Thomas. Right. Say, you know what, unless I put my fingers in the in the the sword, the, you know, the sword uh, where the swords in his side. And if I feel put my fingers in the holes in his hands, I'm just not going to believe when Jesus appeared to them. Um, he would say, I'm not a ghost. They were again, they had the same problem. It's a ghost. Well, after, you know, you might think so. Somebody's walking through the walls. You might think, well, that's unusual. So he was, again, always dealing with the fact that they didn't understand that uh, they needed encouragement, they needed reinforcement, and so forth. You're not seeing a ghost. It is I, the Lord. He was walking on the sea. Now, in addition to, obviously, the fact that it's miraculous, there's something else here. And that is, walking on the sea is the sole prerogative of God. God said, I'm the only one who can walk on the sea. I want you to see that in, in Job. Chapter 9, verse 8. John, Job, chapter 9, verse 8. Job was probably the contemporary of Abraham. 
could well be the oldest book written in the Bible. And there's a lot in there about who God is. Job chapter 9, verse 8. Who alone, alone means just God. Who alone stretches out the heavens and notice tramples down the waves of the sea. It is God's prerogative to walk on the sea. What is this telling us? Very simple. Jesus truly is God's son. He's truly God's son. That's the only explanation for the fact that he's walking on the water, which is the sole prerogative of God. Now, John says to us, if you want to go back to John chapter 20, John 6, rather, verse 20 and 21. He said, remember, he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What this means is that once again, seeing what's going on um, from the point of view of Matthew and Mark helps make these other things understandable. Remember, Jesus calmed the winds. Okay, When he did that, the boat reached the side in no time. I mean, that's really what is going on. It's not saying it's a, another miracle. They weren't miraculously transported. It was just they'd already gone about three or four miles and where they were going, it was probably probably only about five miles, maybe less, from um, where Jesus had left them to Capernaum. So they were close. They didn't know it, but they were close. And so when he calmed the, the winds, it was very simple for them to reach the, the shore in no time. So here we have one, two, three. How do we come to terms with it? The best way to understand this miracle is to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. And I've tried to give you a sense of that as we've gone along this morning. The first thing was that he rejected the overture to make, make him king. Now that probably was a surprise, a disappointment even, for the disciples. They can imagine, you can imagine the excitement, if nothing else, about you have 5,000 people coming and saying, we want you to be king, right? And naturally speaking, if I'm one of the, if I'm in the inner circle and they wanted to be king. That's exciting. Well, when he said, I want no part of it, you know, you can imagine a little disappointment when he says, go away, maybe even more disappointment when, when they, when he, when they get on the, on the uh, water, it's dark. Okay. Vicious storm rises up. That storm shut out the light of the moon. The only light they had, their sail is useless. Jesus is at, this is a test, but this time the test is personal. In other words, the last time the I found, well, how are we going to feed them? This time it's, how am I going to live? How am I going to survive? It's very, very personal this time. Remember, it's a private miracle, just the disciples. So he's really um, speaking through his actions just to them, right? Very personal. And he is the same way with us. There are times when something's going on, nobody else understands it. And so our test of faith then, we can't rely on other people. We need to say, I hope he understands what I'm going through. And of course, we know through faith that he does understand. But at the time, the disciples were asking, is this, is this it? Is he going to abandon us? Did he, he leave us here to die? Right? Just like, by the way, same thing, the people in the, in the desert wilderness, they asked the same thing over and over again. You know, did the Lord take us out of Egypt just so we could die in the wilderness? You can imagine that kind of thought was probably on the minds of at least some of the disciples. He's abandoned us. We're in the darkness. He's left us to face the raging sea alone, perhaps to die alone without him. He can't see us. He's far away. This is a test that we will all face from time to time. We may have problems that crash down on us like 30-foot waves. We may feel like darkness is our only companion. And it seems that in life we're rowing furiously, but getting nowhere. Has he abandoned me? He abandoned my shield. That was the expression that David used. Am I alone? Has he forgotten about me? I want you to turn to Psalm 107, which is a great companion to our miracle story today in John 6. Psalm chapter Psalm 107. 
Where is God? Remember that right after 9-11, a lot of people were asking that question, if you remember. The, the Jews uh, after the um, Holocaust, most of them asked that question. Um, the common culture in our country after World War II, the theme was God is dead. So this should be very familiar to us. We've had to face this question and in our own personal lives. Again, I know people that say, you know, I, I, I thought I was confident in my faith, but now I'm really, this is an experience that we go through. It's why we need the scriptures. It's why we need to know these things about what Jesus did to come through for his disciples, what Jesus did when people had no faith, what he did for his enemies to remind ourselves that, wait a minute, now we're God's sons and daughters. Now he's, we're in union with Christ. So whatever he did for, for those people, he's going to do much more for us. What we need to re- be reminded, and the only place that will remind us of that are the scriptures. That's the place. For example, Psalm 107, verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man. And we're at their wit's end. Wit's end. That's what happens to us. We're at our wit's end. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 talked about the fact that he even despaired of life itself. He couldn't explain it. He just thought that everything was dark at my wit's end. Verse 28, the key. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. And then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. And for his wonders to the sons of men, let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. If if you've been through something that seemed unable to be solved, maybe you're in a situation of death. Maybe you're in a hopeless financial situation. Maybe you've got somebody in your life that you've tried to do everything for and things are not any better. And then he, what does he do? He guides us to our desired heaven. All things are working together for good. There, we may not understand how he's going to get us there, but if he's promised to, he will. And then what's the response? If you've ever been through a really dark place and the Lord has delivered you out of it, the, the, the thing that is in your heart is gratitude. Hopefully, I got through this. I'm so grateful. You know, I have a new lease on life. And that's the way they, that they were. Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. Now is his promise to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, and we can certainly apply that. But we also have our own scripture that says the same thing to the church. Look at Hebrews. Now, this will be the last place we'll go. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Has the Lord forsaken me? Is he going to abandon my soul? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. I'm here in the darkness. Will I always be here in the darkness? Will it ever be light again? Oh, that's why um, I think it's significant that it was in the fourth watch that Jesus came. Because the fourth watch is the last watch of the darkness. And then the bright morning star. Being a little poetic here. But that's who he's called. Comes in. Comes in and rescues us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You see, when we think that, we're thinking wrong. We're not thinking clearly. We have a lot of emotions, but if we think he's deserted us, we're just wrong. And we, that's why, you know, that's again, that's why these scriptures are here, to remind us he'll never forsake us. 
He will never desert you under any circumstances. And that should be a comfort. Even though you can't see it, you're not experiencing it, you're very low, it seems like everything is dark, remind yourself. It's not dark for him. Right? Darkness is never dark for the Lord, no matter what it is you're going through. Anything that seems impossible, it's possible with the Lord. And you just got to keep reminding yourself of that. So then what? Verse 6. So we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? It's a good question. You know, we so many things that we're facing in life are situations where we are afraid of what people can do to us. And then. And we have to remind ourselves, it doesn't really matter because the Lord will never forsake me. He will help me. I am not going to be afraid. I just am. And that's a decision, by the way. You just make up your mind. I'm not going to be afraid. It feels like I should be afraid, but the Lord is my helper. I'm just not going to do it. You know, fear is paralysis. When you're afraid, you can't do anything. And maybe that's good because then you have to cry out to the Lord. But it makes you paralyzed. It makes you fearful. It makes you skeptical. And, and he doesn't ever want you to be afraid. That's why he keeps saying, do not fear, do not fear. That's probably more often than do not worry, do not worry. And what are the two things we do whenever we're facing something uncertain or painful? We are afraid and we're worrying. When are we going to wake up and just hear the Lord telling us? Don't ever be afraid. Stop worrying. So don't ever be afraid. And stop worrying. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know just the fact that we can call you, Father, tells us everything we need to know about who you are in our life and how you'll always come through for us. And we also know that Jesus is at your right hand praying for us. That's an unbeatable combination. And on top of that, we know that the Holy Spirit was in our hearts is advocating for us and explaining the things that we can't put into words how comforting that is what security there is in that help us father to keep that in mind at all times especially when we need it the most father this morning too we want to also express the truth of your gospel the fact that we're all born as sinners and you sent jesus christ as our savior as our perfect sacrifice for our sins, and you raise him from the dead. And in your plan, salvation itself is a matter of grace. It's a gift. And the, and the manner in which you have set things up so that we become born again is by simply believing this marvelous news. And we so believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I, Jesus said to himself, Whoever said to us, whoever believes will never perish. And we, we bank on that for ourselves. We also know that's true for every unbeliever that we meet. And we would ask, Father, that we would boldly proclaim that without any fear, without any worry. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, we'll be back here Thursday, next room over, 630 for our Bible study. We're having a great time, the three or four of us that are here. <laughs> we would like to see more of you. All right. Um, we know it make it easy with Skype. And I you know I know the temptation. Believe me, if I wasn't a pastor, I would be sorely tempted to say the same thing from time to time. You know what? I'm just going to watch it on Skype. That way I can sit here and, you know, I can have my coffee. Uh, if there's something good on television, I can peek over. That's why when I ask questions, I, you know, I never hear from people. On the, I'm kidding. But anyway, we want you to be here if you possibly can, because the, the experience is so much better face to face when it comes to discussing and the nuances of conversation and so forth. It's really hard to get that get that across when you're not here. So we would invite you again. Six thirty. Um, we have a prayer meeting at the end of that. Um, you know, uh, uh, we're not in the same place anymore, but we still have the same policy for giving. That it, is, that it is by grace we have received and by grace we give. That it's a matter of generosity of heart and cheerfulness and understanding that our gratitude, when it turns into our ability to give to others, completes the circle with God. All right. Um, I guess we don't have an offering box here.
So we don't have that convenience right now. But I think most of you use the mail anyway, these days, or even technology, right? Online banking. Wow. Anyway, um, so we and we thank you. We, we uh, thank you for all the gifts that you've given us, and we thank you for supporting us as we go forward. All right. With that, let's close in prayer one more time. Father, we just, as we leave today, we thank you for building up our hearts, challenging us. And we would ask now, Father, that as we go back into this world, this chaotic world, that we would keep the North Star in our hearts of you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.